Hi folks, Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned on every single show. You'll be an official sponsor of the Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Mom, can I come in? I have to record the uh, the intro to my show. Sir, no problem. Thanks, I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. See you later. Yeah, I'll just I'll just sit right here on the toilet. I guess that's okay. convenient. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane, recording live in my parents' bathroom. See, back before I came to the glamorous city of New York, I used to have a beautiful little home studio set up with a mixing board and my nice studio microphones and comfy chair and a big work table and my computer. And uh, now, (laughs) at the moment, I'm in New York City, uh, sans job or a place of my own to live. And so I'm crashing at my parents' house. And uh, that means I now have to find creative places to get a little bit of quiet and record the show. (laughs) So at the moment, I'm recording the intro to this this episode of the show uh, in my parents' bathroom. So thanks to my mom, Sally Gustafson, for uh, guest uh, her guest cameo appearance on this episode of The Jazz Session. Uh, this is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, although I'm sure they'd like to distance themselves from that fact now. The web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at TheJazzSession.com, and you can also subscribe in iTunes or using an RSS reader. And uh, the links to do both of those things are at thejazzsession.com. So here I am in New York. Uh, from now on, Jazz Session interviews will be done face-to-face, in person. That's uh, the best way to do it. You get much better interaction with the artists, and uh, it's, the sound quality is a lot better, and that means a lot to me. And uh, it's been great talking to all the people on the phone over the years, uh, in addition to the, you know, obviously the in-person interviews I've already done. But uh, I'm I'm really excited now to just be able to be here, and uh, and soon I'll be probably sleeping like right in Central Park, and there'll be convenient benches uh, to record the shows, and uh, I'm really, really looking forward to that. So, or maybe I'll find a job. Who knows? Today's interview is with uh, the saxophonist Sarah Manning. She has a, a great record on Positone called Dandelion Clock. Not her first album, um, but actually the first one that I was familiar with. I uh, I got to know about her uh, when the Positone record came out. And uh, we met, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, at a nice little cafe um, down near the village. And uh, we ended up having to relocate, as you'll also hear in the interview. Uh, Let's uh, start off with uh, one of the tracks from Dandelion Clock. This is Jimmy Rawls' tune, The Peacocks. (laughs) 
My guest is Sarah Manning. She's got a great record out on Positone called Dandelion Clock. And uh, Sarah, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for being it's nice here. Nice to be here. And we are apparently in, uh, I guess, in Jackson Square, did we decide? I think it's Jackson Square. It's the corner of uh, Horatio and Greenwich Avenue. Well, the little triangle formed there. Yeah. yeah, it's not really a square. I'm not that great on geography, but it looks like it has three sides. Yeah, I think it is a triangle. <laughs> And uh, we got chased out of the coffee shop we tried to do this in by uh, a, a random set of Disney tunes that was a little more than I think we could reasonably be expected to take. We think it was meant ironically, but... <laughs> exactly. can only hope it was meant ironically. So uh, this, I really, really love this record. And the first thing that struck me about the record uh, was your sound on it and uh, just how kind of uh, both singing and... Uh, forceful your approach to the saxophone is and I thought maybe you could talk just a little bit about um, if there are things that you've you've people or uh, ideas you've patterned yourself after in terms of your approach to the alto saxophone well, and its role uh, in the music yeah um, well thank you I'm glad you enjoyed it I think that um, I've always found that the saxophone and the cello actually to be the two most expressive instruments um, it's interesting that you bring up the comment singing because I'm, I can't sing at all and uh, <laughs> people often assume um, as a woman that I'm actually a vocalist um, even despite the fact that the cover has me on the, on the record with the saxophone, people have still asked whether I do sing as well. Um, but I do think it's, it's kind of interesting because as, as the human voice, um, I do tend in the alto range. So I think that for me, the alto is the closest thing that I can get to expressing myself vocally, but, uh, but obviously with, with an instrument. And I've always been drawn to um, the, the unique sounds of jazz, um, different players, people like James Spaulding, um, Jackie McLean was a big uh, early influence on me, um, and just the idea that that's what the what jazz should be. is it's, it's about having an identity on your instrument. Johnny Hodges, I think he used to call his sound his kitchen, you know, and get out of my kitchen <laughs> if, you, uh, if you're trying to cop the sound. So, so that's always been like the number one uh, thing for me is, is uh, sound production. I'm fascinated with it, and I would say that I spend most of my practice time focusing on that um, as opposed to the language itself. Well, that's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, remembering that we're kind of speaking to a general audience, but sure. about how you focus on uh, practicing sound rather than language? Yeah, um, long tones, long tones, long tones. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I, I, I also do the overtone series, which um, if you're not familiar with saxophone, it's it's uh, it's sort of like if, when you play the trumpet or trombone, uh, you get pitches by uh, hearing them and then kind of, I guess, for lack of a better word, squeaking them out um, from the acoustics of the instrument. It's a physics thing. And so saxophone has that capability as well. And we have a lot of buttons to push that create the uh, different pitches, but we can also get a series of pitches based on uh, the acoustics of sound, like harmonics and things like that. And so I'll, I'll play with the tuner. I'll work on my overtone series. Um, and uh, I will uh, spend, you know, half hour, 40 minutes or so, sometimes more of, of the practice session doing that and just listening and, and trying to um, to create a, a warmth and large sound. And then is the idea of that to get the mechanics to a place where when you're actually performing in the music, you can forget those things or internalize them? Um, well, I think what it is really is that I find that because sound is the most important thing, it's like uh, like when we have a cold and you're trying to give a speech, uh, it's very difficult. So for me, when I have when I've got access to that sound um, that I hear and I like, um, then speaking is is so much easier. I hear more ideas and things like that. So. Mm-hmm. 
will you talk about uh, the fantastic band that you have on this album would you um i love my band <laughs> um uh yeah uh, sure uh, and i i i've been trying to i've played with um Art Hirahara on piano, uh, Linda O oh on the bass, and Kyle Struve on drums for a number of years. Um, and I've been very focused on keeping the same group of people um, for most of my shows uh, so that we develop as a group um, and so that I can write for them. And, and that is what I did on this record. I took individual um, kind of strengths and ideas. Uh, for example, on the tune I Tell Time by the Dandelion Clock. Um, uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm sorry, that... Not that tune, but um, art, Art's playing really comes out on the owls or on the march. It's mm. a, because he has like a, a very contrapuntal left hand. Um, it's something that I noticed in his playing that I haven't really heard in anyone else's playing. And tell people what that means. Um, meaning that he's he's got really like a, a almost a classical approach within the jazz, um, and he's he's doing a lot of things with his left hand harmonically. Um, even as he's he's in a more traditional sense um, playing with his right hand improvising, so the t- the two things almost like a fugue, like a Bach fugue or something like so that. So rather than just kind of blocks of chords in his right. left hand, he has other melody lines or other harmonic lines. Right, there's sort of an intricacy with the lines that's going on. It's almost like there's two piano players at times, and so I, I focused on that with that particular tune. He he really has an opportunity to play with Linda. Uh, in that sense, and it, it, his playing reminds me of that sort of a classical approach. How did you assemble this particular band? Um, well, it's interesting. I was in the Bay Area for five years, um, and I uh, Art was actually from the Bay Area originally, and he was on the uh, he moved to the East Coast right about the time I moved to the West Coast. But I kept hearing about him, and I when I assembled this group, I was thinking that I would eventually have to be in New York, um, but I was still in California, and so I found Art uh, when he was back visiting friends or something like that and audition where we basically just played together uh, when he was visiting, but he was living in New York. And then he actually recommended, uh, well actually uh, there was another friend of mine who recommended Kyle, who's kind of a a little bit of a, uh, dare I say he's a little reclusive, (laughs) Um, but an amazing drummer. Uh, And I got together uh, with Kyle and then uh, Linda 
was someone that I sort of sought out uh, just using MySpace. Um, I was looking for a, a bass player and uh, looked around and really liked her, her stuff that she had online, liked her approach. Um, and then we all came together and, and uh, it worked out great. So, Were there particular qualities you were looking for on the bass and drums? It sounded like you'd already had some idea where art was concerned. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think that as far as the band is concerned, I, I, I look at it as a very egalitarian kind of thing. Like I, I don't like the idea of, of uh, a jazz quartet being leader sideman. Uh, and like a horn player out there grandstanding with the backup arrangement of piano, bass, and drums. And so each person needed to have a strong individual voice uh, and approach. And um, I think that with Linda, clearly she has an uh, amazing personality on the bass. She's got a great sound. She's got the virtuosity, but she's also rhythmically, uh, she's very uh, on top of things. So she's not, she's never doing too much in one direction or another. She's not, she, she fills all the different roles that she needs to. Um, and then with Kyle, uh, I heard a little bit in his playing, uh, he has played in various indie rock bands as well. And so I kind of liked that approach and I, I integrated it for that reason as well. And how do you work that egalitarian approach into recording sessions, for example, or into live performance? Um, I think that I, it's more of a factor of, uh, I just let them do their own thing uh, within the context. I mean, I don't, uh, a lot of times, you know, say, we just organically kind of come up with like uh, the solo order I think we have there's a track on the record that's completely improvised um, and that's something that I would not really have felt comfortable doing or releasing with the band that I hadn't worked with and I think it really that was the moment um, it's called Through the Keyhole that we really connected it as an ensemble so And when you perform live, uh, do you do more of that kind of thing? Kind of Actually, we don't. That was something that I have to credit Mark Free uh, and, and uh, Nick O'Toole, the, the Mark's the producer of the record, um, with encouraging us to do in the studio. It's not something I was prepared for. Um, not that you can really prepare for a completely <laughs> improvised track, per se. Um, and uh, it is something I'd like to explore more, but it was, it was a little bit of a, a surprise. <laughs> Thank you. 
You mentioned uh, Jackie McLean, and I know both he and Yusuf Latif are people who've had an influence on your uh, musicianship. Can you talk a little bit about Jackie first? Sure. Um, I grew up in uh, in Torrington, Connecticut, and West Hartford, Connecticut is where uh, Jackie McLean was based out of. He was uh, teaching at the Artist Collective, a school he founded with Dolly McLean, his wife. Um, and that uh, was something where I always said that Jackie's sort of in the air in that area. A lot of people... He, he's the, he was the heavy <laughs> in the Hartford scene. And uh, so people knew about him. They listened to him. And I got to study at the Artist Collective. Uh, it was kind of an after-school program um, as a junior in an ensemble run by the trombonist Steve Davis. Mm-hmm. And Jackie McLean came to one of our uh, performances. And I had done my very first arrangement that was publicly debuted there. And it was a, a tune, a Sonny Clark tune called two for one which is kind of a blues i added a couple extra bars and i harmonized it with the trumpet and the trombone like uh, a trumpet and tenor half step above and below the melody so it was very very dissonant and jackie mclean was sitting about four feet away from me and he (laughs) he uh made faces and covered his ears (laughs) when i did that but then later he came up to me he he liked it a lot and so i just felt uh there's just so much warmth from that school um and uh so much respect for the music that I was feeling coming from him. So, and are there things you can point to in either your approach as a as a musician, a composer, a performer uh, that you can kind of relate back to your studies with Jack? Well, I would say really um, the biggest thing again is, is coming from sound. Um, what I've learned from Jackie McLean is that people always ha- they have an opinion one way or another. Uh, some people don't like the the sort of edginess to his sound. Uh, you could, if you try to pinpoint it, um, you could say he's a little sharp. Uh, in his tone, uh, and uh, I would say that um, it just taught me that perception of sound is a very personal thing, um, and uh, again, that that was such an important thing to be able to listen to a record and, like, say he's playing with Mingus and identify him by two or three notes. Yeah, that is what I like about his sound. I <laughs> so I guess I'm in that camp. Right. Um, and then uh, I know you also had a chance to work with Yusuf Latif. Can you talk about that? I did. I actually studied with him more formally. I studied um, composition with uh, Dr. Latif, but in many ways I'm not sure exactly what I studied except for the <laughs> fact that I um, I absorbed some of the, the, the fact that he's just a, he's a wonderful man. He's a great person. He's a very spiritual person, um, very dedicated to the music as a uh, as like calling, um, very opinionated about what's appropriate and what's not in the music. Again, he's very much uh, a follower of find your own sound, uh, follow your own path. The music of the 40s that, you know, retro jazz, if you want to call it, um, being, that was music he was certainly... Um, Bop was certainly a period of time that he was playing in. Um, he was playing, you know, some of those records with Cannonball. Uh, but he, at the same time, uh, that was music of his time. And so he's very adamant that the music of now needs to come from who we are now. And I think that was a really important lesson to learn. Is there a, uh, is there a way that you feel you try to make your music music of now? What does that mean for you? How does that translate? Well, it's an interesting question because I've always been... Um, to put it mildly, uh, stubborn as hell. <laughs> so even when I was trying to learn, it, it's sort of about the way I learn. Because when I tried to take a more conventional approach uh, that education, jazz education, often does for for learning music, which is to take theory lessons and apply patterns uh, that you pre-work out and 
translate them into all 12 keys and it's basically learn a vocabulary and a language and uh, then when you start your solo you press go and you you assemble all these different patterns um, I, I never could learn that way and so I think that I was very much um, just by default um, coming at it in a much slower way um, but a more organic way simply because of the way I learn um, and then I guess that overall I just don't um, I don't know it, it wasn't a it, it, deliberately I, I did want to find I've, and I'm still finding a sound a personal voice um, but I wouldn't say that I had to do any kind of major rejections of things other than just the way that I learned sure so on this uh, record, Dandelion Clock, in addition to your own compositions, there's also tunes people would be familiar with, like the Peacocks, for example. Exactly. Example. Um, and so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that idea of individuality and a, and a personal sound when you're uh, projecting that both through the lens of your own writing and through the lens of other people's writing. Yeah, I would say that I wanted to I want to give credit again to Mark Free uh, and Nick O'Toole for, for kind of pushing me to record a couple of standards. Um because that's not something that I had been doing. I think it was an amazing experience to be able to do it because um, so much of this, the music is rooted in history. Um, and you're taking material and, and it's a basis for putting your own, I guess, stamp on something or, or attempting to and also to pay tribute to what went before. And I think the two things are, are very possible to do. mentioned as we were walking over here that uh, one of the things I've done with my life is work in the bicycling industry. And so I was reading, I think it was in your biography, uh, <laughs> about a, and you obviously know where I'm going, I think I do. A, a bicycle-related, uh, Ruf, Rufus Reed slash bicycle-related dream that led to the West Coast. And it's very intriguing, so um, tell us the story. Yeah, I, I'm one of those people that I don't have a, I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but every now and then I have a very, very obvious dream. And I always laugh because they're so completely obvious, maybe not to everyone else, but what they mean. <laughs> And in this case, I was living in Massachusetts. Um, I had thought of going to California. I was a little bit stuck musically. Uh, I wasn't doing a lot of playing. And I hadn't really taken off and started to develop as a professional yet. And I studied with Rusa, uh, Rufus Street at William Patterson. Um, and so in this dream, 
uh, Rufus told me that I needed to get out there and play with people that could kick my butt <laughs> musically. <laughs> and uh, that it was very, very important that I do that. And if, um, if I had to travel to do that, that was also important. And then he gave me a bicycle, uh, presumably with the idea that, that I would be traveling um, you know, to, to, to get this schooling, as it were. So, so that was, uh, it was a very important dream to me because it, it just, it told me, you know, look, I'm not challenging myself. I'm not doing enough. I need to get out there. And, and then shortly after that, I did move to the West Coast. So when the film is made, presumably, you'll wake up <laughs> from that dream, just grab your saxophone and It wasn't quite so easy right? <laughs> as that. And, uh, yeah, and I, I, biking with a saxophone is actually quite difficult. I've tried it a number of times, but um, it can be done. But <laughs> Yes, I, I have done it, actually. Yeah. Uh, so um, did you notice uh, marked differences when you went out to the West Coast in uh, kind of the, the environment that you were in musically, the things that uh, were expected of you or you expected of yourself? I think so, definitely. Um, I, I, when I went out to the Bay Area, I guess it was in 2002, um, I was really at the very, very beginning of my career. I hadn't done a lot of performing on my own except through school and here and there um, some shows and so I really um, at that time took the initiative to put a band together and I was playing with I basically tried to hire all of the people that were uh, you know 20 years or 30 years older than me mm. that had been making the music for years um, people like Akitatana on drums um, and uh, you know uh, some of the the Bay Area heavies like uh, the piano player Lee Bloom has been out there for years in many capacities and so working with these players um, who had been around and uh, people like Randy Porter from Portland, that really, really helped me uh, learn in a way that I hadn't before. Um, and, and, and it's a different attitude on the West Coast as well. Was there any difficulty as a, as a young player, you know, just making your way to get some of these, these more established uh, Bay Area players? Um, I think there's a certain amount of skepticism um, that you have to overcome initially. Um, I did have an experience once where somebody, a uh, well-known player, wouldn't play any of my original music on a, <laughs> on a performance. Um, <laughs> but uh, overall, um, you know, I, I had a very positive experience in that regard.
And so besides the fact that it's just like a jazz magnet that sucks everyone here eventually, when did you, or how did you decide that it was time to come back to these kids? Well, I started doing this a little bit gradually. Like I, I just, I had contacts in New York. Um, my band, I put together a band in New York. I did all these things thinking that I would still be living in the Bay Area and, you know, it's a global economy, a global society. Right. I could go back and forth and because I love the West Coast itself, um, from a personal standpoint, I love being able to go out to the ocean and just see whales and stuff like that. But uh, I think that, um, you know, I knew that I would have to be here someday. And, and the emphasis to leave finally, uh, you know, clubs are closing. Uh, every year, the Bay Area usually loses uh, one or two great piano players. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it just it just became time. And I also felt that I had spent enough time there kind of working on uh my my own identity as a player and that I could handle coming here uh, because New York is a total immersion and, and you do get a lot of uh, pressure from the scene which has one way of doing things and so you have to be able to kind of withstand that when you come here. Yeah. So now that you're here and uh, making your way in the New York scene uh, do you feel like you were prepared for it when you got here given that you'd taken that kind of incremental approach? Um, I think so but I also think that what I was a little bit surprised about is uh, that uh, when you get to New York, I, I, I wasn't prepared for the idea that all of my preconceptions about music would kind of go out the window <laughs> again. I, that had happened to me before when I studied with Yusuf Latif, hmm. um, and I think it happened a little bit here. I've, it's actually brought in my taste in music. Um, I listen to a lot of different kinds of music now that I didn't listen to before. Uh, I have to say there's a certain amount of... Um, dissatisfaction with the way that the jazz scene is in New York um, because I see so many people that are very talented artists struggling uh, to play in front of very, very tiny audiences. And I think that the mystique of jazz um, even pervaded my own idea as a professional player. I, I still was is, had this idea that New York is where it's happening, the love of the life, this glamorous life as a jazz musician. Um, when in fact, you know, even the people playing uh, some of the top clubs in the city are, you know, they're playing for 50 bucks and they go home and they get up and they go teach the new school <laughs> or wherever. And, and, and not to say that education is bad, but uh, it's, a different, it's a different life than probably a lot of people imagine. Yeah, yeah. Over the hundreds and hundreds of these interviews that have now happened, that is a, a overarching theme is that the mystique of the jazz lifestyle is really pretty much just that. It's a mystique and it's not borne out yeah, by and, the reality. And I would really like to see um, more consciousness on the part of the of listeners um, to that. There are a certain amount of listeners that definitely know that uh, how important their own investment in the scene is. Um, and uh, it's not something we can take for granted. I don't, by any stretch of the imagination, believe that jazz is dead. But I also, I do believe that we need to, in some ways, take down the barrier between the audience and the musicians. And uh, we need to know that we're in this together. And that's how concerts are record contracts are signed and people stay being able to record music is because people are buying the music or if you go to a club you know you play there five or six times because your audiences are growing not diminishing so you know it's interesting that you say the thing about taking down the barrier uh, i was talking with the drummer gabriel gloga the other night at a show and uh we were talking about the idea of making the music more accessible for the audience in the moment, not necessarily by anything you do to the music, but by what you do around the music, the conversation you might have with the audience during the show and that kind of thing. Uh, are you referring to something like that, or are you talking about something a little uh, more meta I, than that? I'm talking a, li a little bit about that and a little bit about the idea that um, the artists that we listen to um, do have these lives in which uh, their only focus is music. Um, 
that they don't do any kind of teaching or anything like that. I think it's important to realize the, the, the reality of, of being a jazz musician often means you have to have a second career to support your music. But uh, but also with the audience itself, I, I agree. And I think that that's something that I'm struggling to do in my own performances um, is to actually bring back a little bit of the element that it's a performance. Um, I would love to perform in venues uh, that don't have any seats, for example. I've been thinking of looking into that where the audience is standing on kind of milling around so people can move if they want to um, and experience the music in a, in a different way as opposed to just sitting. Um, and I have played, I was able to go on the road with the rock bands last year, an indie rock band that was all about um, the performance, the the uh, Afropunk pop uh, musician Ebony Bones, and mm. she's she's quite theatrical in her performance, and compared to sort of a um, uh, our costumes have been played to like clown costumes or carnival costumes or Mardi Gras, and I think that really does help engage the audience. And I don't, I used to think that was artifice, and now I think that maybe it's it's not. It's just part of a performance. Yeah, the thing that uh, that we were coming back to in this conversation was. Uh I've always hated the quote, uh, I'm pretty sure it's Louis Armstrong quote, if I have to explain, what is jazz if I have to explain it to you, you'll never understand. Uh Which, I don't even know how he meant it, and I don't particularly care. But in in the modern sense, that's exactly not how I feel about the music. And in fact, one of the reasons I started interviewing musicians 10 years ago was to kind of break down the walls to this jazz priesthood, this inaccessibility into right. the, the music and why people play what they play and that kind of thing. And so I, I really like that idea of finding yourself in uh, in different styles of space even and, and the difference that that can make on mm-hmm. the music. And I don't think that that has to... Um, I don't usually inject too much of my own opinion, but I will for a minute here. I, I don't think that that has to mean uh, an artificial showmanship like you were right. just discussing. Because many people approach their interaction or their interaction while playing with the audience in a, in a variety of different ways, and they can all be genuine, and they can all be accessible to the audience. Um, but I do think it means at least acknowledging the fact that there is an audience, that there are people there, and that there's some kind of connection there beyond whatever like psychic communication they might be giving you while you're playing. Absolutely. I agree. I, I, and I think that um, I know certain... Uh, well, it, it, it depends... When it becomes artificial is when you're doing it deliberately to get uh, a certain reaction out of the audience. Perhaps. I don't know. Because all of the most eclectic figures of music, um, you could say that argument about Bob Dylan. I mean, he in his interviews and everything, was he just being himself or was he very deliberately kind of pushing buttons with the press to right. help make himself into a mythical figure? And uh, I, I think maybe the latter. So I think that that's, it's important uh, to not lose the music itself or to change the music itself. But I think that elements of presentation um, that are a little bit more radical, like, say, again, different configurations of space or uh, even costumes, um, integration of some more modern uh, equipment into a show, like uh, what many, many people are doing now with, you know, like... uh, computer tracks and things like that all of that stuff can work depends on the artist so speaking of live performances are there any upcoming shows you'd like to mention um right now it's actually uh <laughs> i'm the only thing i have definitively on the calendar right now i had taken a little bit of a hiatus um to kind of regroup as i said new york kind of does that to people <laughs> yeah <laughs> um uh is actually the tangle with jazz festival it's, oh, uh, nice. it's until september but and i'm sure there'll be some things that are coming before that but uh, right now I'm, I'm working on them great and there'll be uh, links to your site in the show notes for this show so folks can go and uh, check out your gig calendar there and, perfect and, and i'm also on facebook <laughs> <laughs> and myspace although you know it's myspace <laughs> yeah that's right yeah exactly <laughs> so uh finally i guess i would ask just what what makes all of this worth it for you? What what makes continuing to perform and continuing to to, to 
struggle to whatever degree you are as a jazz musician worth it for you? Well, I think it comes back to this idea, and it, it's certainly something that's been very poignant to me over the last year um, since coming to New York. I think it comes down to a couple of things. One is that, um, for me, the I love performing. I love the music. I think it's uh, amazing to be able to get out there individually um, and through improvisation express what you're feeling in the moment uh, with the interaction between other members of your group and also the interaction of the audience. And I also think that... Um, it's important that if we have a, a gift to perform music, uh, I, I see it as a vocation. I see it as something that um, we are called to do that's bigger than ourselves. And that even though it's a struggle, um, that it's it's worth it to continue because I know that in my music I have some touched people in ways that um, my usual, you know, kind of off-kilter witty self cannot. So <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's it's not about ego. It's about um, sharing sharing a gift that you might have with the world. Well, that's a beautiful place to end it. My guest is Sarah Manning. She has a uh, brand new record called Dandelion Clock on Positone. And it was great to meet you. And really fun to listen to this Likewise. music. I really enjoyed it. Thanks Thank very much. Thank you so much. album Dandelion Clock. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at TheJazzSession.com. You can download or stream all of the episodes, and you'll also find them in iTunes, at least the recent ones, and you can subscribe using an RSS reader, too, if you like, and all the links to do that are at TheJazzSession.com. Please do become a member, and I think uh, it's probably obvious to you at this point, given the fact that I'm recording, as I said, in uh, my parents' bathroom, that your memberships uh, directly support the show 
and uh, you know keep me in uh, in vegan food and you know hopefully a place to live. So uh, please do become a member. Uh, this is not a case of some you know multi million dollar uh, public broadcasting entity uh, asking for money while their CEO you know drives a Lexus. Uh, this is uh, literally a guy in his parents' bathroom. So uh, if that's not something you'd like to support, I can't imagine what might be. Uh, thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. They are online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel for the show's logo. And he tweets very humorously at uh, Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Dave V-R-A-B-E-L. Now, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.